Welcome back to the Royals Farm Report podcast. This is your first time listening. My name is Joel Penfield. I'm I'm also joined by Alex Duvall. He is the editor-in-chief and co-founder of Royals Farm Report. If this is your first time listening, Alex, how are you doing? Joel, I am better. It could not have gotten off to a worse week early on. We had the Super Bowl on Sunday. Right in the middle of the Super Bowl, Pedro Gomez, you know, they announced that he passed away. And then we had snow days Monday and Tuesday at school because it was so cold and so icy on the ground. And then the legendary Therese Paler, we found out he passed away, which, you know, I, I, I don't know. They've announced a cause or whatever, but I, 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 it shocked me. Like, I, I, I don't know if that was something that, you know, some people expected, but it seems like it was kind of like the, the whole situation with Chadwick Bozeman where it just shocked everybody seemingly. And, you know, that ripped my heart out for a little bit. But last night, the Royals injected a little ecstasy into my veins by trading for Ben Intendi and, you know, a little bit of an uptick heading into today. We had school again. So um, despite the bitter cold and what a crappy week it was before last night, um, things are trending in the right direction again. Yeah, definitely. Like my, my thoughts and prayers are with the Gomez family and Therese Paler and his family as well. Like those are two you know, just legends in sports media, you know, Therese was, you know, not, not even 40 yet. You know, you think about the great respect that he had earned in Kansas city and the national media as a whole, everyone was, was put, touched by him in some way and was impacted by him in, in some way, uh, especially the local Kansas city guys that we follow so well. Uh, yeah, that, that was definitely a gut punch for sure, but let, let's, you know, let's go to the positive as much as we possibly can. Uh, we're recording on Thursday, the 11th, we're less than a week until pitchers and catchers are reporting to spring training. Baseball is right around the corner, despite the awful weather we have going uh, in the Midwest here right now. I'm in Oklahoma, and it's single digits. It's damn near single digits here. It's really cold up where you're at in Kansas City area. Uh, but our guys are going to be down in Surprise, Arizona in about a week getting ready for baseball. Uh, the end of the season is probably going to be a little weird because the, the pandemic is still, you know, still going on. But uh, we get a little sense of normalcy with a true spring training and the season's starting, uh, hopefully, in transition with that. So we got, we got some exciting times coming up here, a lot to talk about. Uh, this is a podcast that Alex and I have done you know, off and on for about a year and a half, two years now. With no minor league season last year, we tried to do some content here and there, but it was tough having no Royals farm to report on. It, it made things kind of tough on us, so we just kind of stepped away, took a little hiatus from it. Uh, we're ready to get things back rolling. Uh, the site's going to be up and running, really going once again. Uh, the Twitter account's going to be firing off stat after stat after stat during the year and update after update. It's, I'm glad that we're getting back to regular, more normal baseball season and minor league baseball, it, which is the crux of what we do at the site. It matters a lot to us, and it seems like we're going to get some sort of normal season like that, even if it is a little bit delayed. We have actual minor league baseball to talk about. Yeah, last season, I mean, just just killed us. I mean, and obviously when you when you have a website that is dedicated to one thing and one thing only, and that one thing gets canceled for the entire year, it's going to do a do a number to what you do. But just in terms of like, I, I don't think I realized how much minor league baseball played a role in my passion for baseball. Like, you know, back in 2015, before we even had this site, it was easy to be a baseball fan because the Royals were so good. And I find this with like college basketball as well, where when Mizzou was going through their Kim Anderson years, I, I, I didn't even like watching college basketball in general that much, but 
college basketball is one of my favorite sports to watch. It's right up there with football and baseball for me. I love college basketball. Now that Mizzou's good again, it's easy to watch. And, and baseball was the same way last year for me where, you know, typically on a Sunday afternoon when the Royals are done playing, I can flip over to an A's and Mariners game and watch any ball game that's on no problem. And last year, man, with no minor league baseball, the Royals were slumping a little bit. Like, it was hard for me to just tune in to other baseball games. Like, it was hard for me to get into it. It was hard for me to, you know, even with – even having missed the first 100 games of the season, it was really hard for me to get into it just because of all the the lack of stuff that was going on. And, man, I mean, I, I am so excited for minor league baseball to be back. Like, I know a lot of people, you know, don't pay too much attention to minor league baseball. There's – you know, I think, you know, a significant portion of people who only pay attention to the big league ball club. But, man, I I don't know if I can express how much fun it is to watch minor league baseball just as a baseball fan because it's, it's, it's something of a reflection or of a midway point, if you will, between college baseball and major league baseball. It's, it's kids. They're out there having fun. They're living – in crappy dorm rooms and hotels and riding crappy buses, but they're out there playing the game they love. And there's, and there's something infectious about that attitude of they clearly don't have it the best and they're still out there having a grand old time, man. And it's, and, and that's what it is. That's, that's why it's America's national pastime. It's the grand old game. It's, it is what it is because, because of that infectious attitude that kids have when they're playing and, um, man, I, I just – I could not be more excited to have that back in my life. For sure. It was – it was just weird. And as – and I mentioned this, uh, I'll give a little uh, preview of what we have going on in the episode. Later on in this episode, uh, Alex and I last week had the opportunity to interview Ann Rogers, the Royals uh, – new Royals beat reporter taking over for Jeffrey Flanagan. And in that, I talk about, like, how much I gained an appreciation for the game because – it's been such a part of our lives for sure. And, you know, I'm sure anybody else listening to this for years and years and years. And we just, every year, just routine, routine. Yeah. Spring training, you know, long off season, spring training season, you know, and we, and it just comes in, you know, it's cyclical, but that was taken away from us for a large portion of last season, along with a lot of other things that 2020 had to, to offer or lack thereof. But when the season came back, I had this renewed respect and admiration and love of the game because I never wanted to take it for granted ever again. I never wanted to just, Oh, you know, they're going to play the 162 games. No, I'm going to love all 162 games this year in a new renewed way because we had a shortened season last year. We didn't even know if they were going to play a season for a significant period of time. So last season was weird. It was odd. It was, you know, whatever other adjectives you want to use, but I'm excited to get another get that season. And like I said, I'm never going to take the game of baseball for granted as a fan ever again. I just, I think 2020, if I'm going to learn any lesson from 2020, it's that like to not take things like that for granted. For sure. And, and, you know, generally with life, like all aspects of life, not just baseball, but as it relates to baseball and, and I don't want to give too much away from that interview with Ann, but you, we did talk about like those, those little things in baseball that you miss um, the sights, the sounds, and and you know, last night, you know, good segue here is one of the one of the things that I missed about baseball is the adrenaline rush you get when your team is about to make a big move, and I and I'll never forget the night that um, we traded for James Shields, 
I was, you know, the rumors had been going around because the Royals tried to go get James Shields. Like it wasn't a total shock and all when they made that move. Um, but when you saw the price tag, price tag that came out for a guy like James Shields, like I remember thinking, holy cow. Because I, you know, I, I knew everybody kind of knew it was going to be a Will Myers deal. It was going to be Will Myers or James Shields. I think I, at least what I remember is like that was kind of the crux of what everybody anticipated. And then you found out all of the other names that came with it. And you're like, oh, man, the Royals really feel like they can go for it. And that's one thing that, you know, everybody's got their flaws from GMDM. Dayton Moore is not, you know, uh, explicit from that. He has his flaws as it relates to being a general manager. One thing that I think Dayton Moore does exceptionally well is gauges his internal value of his players. And when he traded Will Myers, I think everybody kind of kind of freaked out. And then Will Myers has gone on to be a good Major League Baseball player. He's a very good hitter. He has not been anywhere close to that what the number three overall prospect in baseball designation would imply that he could have been. And I think there was something about him something about his ability to play baseball that the Royals identified and said, you know what, we can get more value by trading him than by bringing him up. Well, when they announced they're trading for Ben Benintendi, I tweeted a couple times, the price is the only thing that matters. Like if, if the Red Sox just called and said, you can have Ben Benintendi for free. He's a jerk. We don't want to pay him. You just give us a bucket of balls. You can have him. Of course you're going to say yes. Like I, it was never Ben Benintendi that I didn't want on the roster. I just didn't want to trade Jackson Coar for him, right? So when they announced it was Khalil Lee, in the back of my head, like you never root against anybody. Like Khalil Lee is a phenomenal kid, and I, I wish him nothing but the best. And if he was in Kansas City, I would wish him nothing but the best. But in the back of my head, I was kind of smirking a little bit because it was almost like we know something that they don't. Like Dayton knows something that maybe nobody else does. And it is kind of like, and part of it is I was, I was in the middle of writing up our prospect rankings. So I had gotten all the players bios and whatever I was going to write about them was written up and I was just battling internally. Where do I want to have these guys? And <clears throat> Khalil Lee, I looked down and he was 14th on my list. I had him 14th on my Royals prospects list. And that made him the fourth-ranked outfielder in the system behind Kyle Isbell, uh, Eric Pena, and Suli Matias. And so when you think about that, it's the way that Khalil Lee wasn't progressing and the depth that the Royals now sort of have in the outfield, especially considering they acquired Benintendi, I love this trade. I mean – Trading Lee and Cordero does seem like a lot, but if you really boil it down to simplicities, Franchi Cordero's played 95 games across four seasons, and Khalil Lee, like I, I saw Dan Simborski released his Zips projections in that trade, and you know Zips is not very high on Lee at all, and the 80th, 70th percentile outcome for Benintendi is is a two win player, so um, I, I'm I'm excited about that trade. It jazzed me up. I missed stuff like that about baseball. I missed that ecstasy that you get, the adrenaline rush when something like that happens. And, man, if you're a Royals fan listening at home or in the car or wherever you're listening to this right now, the idea that Dayton Moore felt like adding a player like Benintendi for the next two years to this team, you should feel really good 
about how the Royals feel about themselves internally. Because going into the last season, the 2020 season, before we knew it was going to be canceled, the Royals didn't make any big moves like this. They didn't make this type of move. And it's not that Nate Moore was subliminally telling everybody that he didn't think they would compete, but he kind of did, right? And so this year when you make that move, just like we got James Shields for two years, we only get Ben Benintendi for two years unless they extend him. That should give you a really good idea about how the Royals feel about their window, about how they feel about Kyle Isbell when they felt comfortable enough to trade Khalil Lee. Um, you know, I, I only see positive things coming out of this trade. Absolutely. And for the details for people that maybe don't know or want to know more, uh, obviously Andrew Benintendi is coming back to Kansas City. Franchi Cordero from Kansas City to Boston. The Mets were a third team in this. Uh, where they came in or why they came in, I have no idea. But they sent a low-level pitching prospect to Boston. Kansas City is sending Khalil Lee to the Mets. And I believe also in the trade, the, the Royals are getting cash from Boston, about a third of Benintendi's salary-ish, about a little over $2 million, uh, for this year. Because uh, this is Benintendi's second arbitration year. But I love this deal. When I saw the initial tweet that Benintendi is looking to get traded and the Royals are the front runners, I said, yes, give, give me this. I like this a lot. You get two years of him. At first, for some reason, I thought he was just a one-year rental. And at that, at that point, I was like, eh. But for two years, it gives me, and you, you alluded to it a little bit, it gives me James Shields trade vibes a little bit. Not that the Royals are ready to compete right now. Because even when they traded for James Shields, they were not – that window was peeking open a little bit. That They had Hosmer up. They had Moose. They had Salvi. They had Kane, Escobar. Everyone with, the offense was starting to come together a little bit. It was shoring up the pitching staff. And then two years later, obviously, they did what they did. But that window was not open yet in 2013. It was starting to get there. I think what we're seeing right now, going and getting a guy like Andrew Benintendi, who's a solid big league contributor, it shows you, I think – the pitching is coming. You already have Singer and Bubich up. You got Lynch and Coar, Bolin and others just waiting in the wings. Brad Keller's a solid mainstay in the rotation. Bullpen, we'll figure it out. But I think at least the rotation, you know what you're going to get at this point. Or you know that the talent is there. This is shoring up your, your lineup a little bit. It's, getting, it's filling in some of those holes in the lineup. And right now, the Royals lineup, it looks pretty solid if you, if you break it down. But I like what this says about where the Royals are at it, with that winning window again. I think, I think we're seeing it peak open a little bit. I don't, think it's the, I don't think it's yet. I think 22 at the earliest, but I think 2023, we're realistically going to see the Royals as a contender in the AL Central if, if this is any indication of where the Royals could be at right now. And I think that says a lot about what Dayton Moore believes in this team right away. He wants to go and get a guy that – you know, has been a solid big leaguer, was a really good part of that 2018 World Series team uh, in Boston and had a really good 2019 until the last year, last month of the year when he got hurt and was hurt most of last year too. So if he can get back to that 2018, beginning of 2019 form, you have a solid lefty in the lineup that the Royals have desperately needed. He fills in Alex Gordon's spot in left field and well, the chips are going to fall where they may, but right now this looks really good for the future of Kansas City, that's for sure. Yeah, it does. And, you know, one thing that I really enjoyed today, there's a video going around social media of Ben Intendi doing like a, 
introductory press conference virtually, if you will. Um, and he, he made the comment that it's good to feel wanted. And I don't know anything about how Boston runs their organization. I know they traded Mookie Betts, and that's pretty good tell. Um, but the reputation that Dayton Moore has for taking care of people and making it feel like a family and making players feel trusted and wanted. Like, I, I am as analytically driven as anybody else, but I also acknowledge that players won't play loose. They won't play comfortably. They won't play the way you want them to if they feel like they're under pressure all the time. And you can't have players feeling like every mistake they make is going to be their final opportunity or that they need to play a certain way if it's not their style. And I don't want to make it out like, you know, the clubhouse and the attitudes and the, the family feel of the, of the organization are more important than playing than, than good, like physical attributes. But I mean, they're totally undeniably important too. And so I kind of wonder when they get Ben and in here, if he's healthy, if he's in great shape, like apparently he's in the best shape of his life, according to Dayton Moore, man, I, I think there, there's a real opportunity. He bounces back in a big way this year. And the Royals, by adding him at 26 years old, have kind of hedged their bet too. Let's say that this year they go 80 and 82. They don't quite get to 500, but they're a good ball team. They're competitive, clearly one year away from the playoffs. And in 2022, we turn around, and it's July. And, oh, man, 2021 was like 2003 all over again. We were fake contenders, and for some reason, this team's just not ready. Well, then you flip Benintendi at the deadline for a couple of good prospects who can help you in a couple of years. Like they don't, they haven't totally restricted themselves with Benintendi. And if you don't think that they can trade Benintendi for a guy like Khalil Lee, you are crazy. I, I, they can absolutely go get a guy like Khalil Lee in two years. Maybe he fits the timeline better by then. I don't know. So that's that's the beauty of this is is when you trade for a guy this young and this talented, if it doesn't work out then you probably haven't moved enough that's going to kill you in the future. Like, you've got depth in the outfield. Outfielders are, you know, not a dime a dozen by any means. But getting a guy like Khalil Lee on the open market wouldn't be crazy expensive. Um, and, and so you haven't crippled yourself, but you've also given yourself the opportunity for, for a big ceiling here. Um, and, and, and the vote of confidence that gives to – the rest of the team to the rest of the organization and to the fans is, is something that I'm excited about. So I want to go back to a point that you mentioned a little bit earlier when we first started talking about the trade, you mentioned uh, Khalil Lee and Kyle Isbell. I'm curious your thoughts, but I think this says a lot about how the organization views a guy like Kyle Isbell because it made Khalil, making Khalil Lee expendable, making him a guy that you can flip and you can trade which a couple of years ago, I didn't, I didn't know if that was going to be the case. It seemed like he was going to be a guy that was going to be a part of this core in Kansas city. And now he, he obviously has, has struggled a little bit and didn't progress the way necessarily we all thought when, you know, we had him in the top five a couple of years ago. And now you were able to flip him essentially making him expendable an expendable prospect and you have a guy like Kyle Isbell, who the tools jump off the page. Everything we've heard about him is this guy's going to be a solid big leaguer. This, this dude's going to play in the show at some point. 
is he – I think it's just a really interesting look at two players, and I think it says a lot about what Kyle Isbell could bring to the Royals and maybe not what Khalil Lee was going to bring. And it's not a knock on Khalil Lee at all. I'm not trying to criticize the young man, but I just think as players, it says more about what Kyle Isbell can bring right at this point. Yeah, I do think if, if it doesn't say anything about Lee – then it is definitely a vote of confidence in Kyle Isbell. And I, we know they're high on them, on him. We know they love him. And that dude, I, I am telling you, he is going to be a big, big league regular. Um, he is – he works his ass off, first of all. Secondly, he has got a perfect swing for this game. He has a little bit of an uppercut, like a natural uppercut. So he's going to drive the ball in the air naturally. He has great hands. He's not the tallest dude in the world, so his zone is already manageable. He really – I mean, I tweeted this and I wrote about it in the little newser we had when Benintendi was traded officially. He reminds me of Andrew Benintendi. Like, yeah, he's not the same player. He's probably not quite as good of a hitter at present, but there's a chance that he hits for a little more power. He probably will strike out a little more as well, but he's a better defender. Like, he is – Definitely a better defender in the outfield, which which does mean a lot if he can play center field in any capacity. And if he can just be 90% of the hitter that Benintendi is, his defense will make him equally as valuable. So I don't know what Kyle Isbell will be. We had him ranked number five on our list for a reason, though. And I'm sorry, maybe it was number six. Now I can't remember where he was at, but um, Coar was five, which means Pena was – I'm sorry, Coar was four, which means Pena was five, and Isabel was six then. Um, regardless, the kid is going to be good. Like, he, he is solid across the board. He's got a good enough arm. He plays really good defense. Um, and, by the way, if you've got two players that you think are about equal value and you know one is absolutely working their tail off and maybe, you know – I'm not implying anything either way, but if you know Kyle Isbell's busting his butt, like you can at least go to bed at night knowing that you picked the guy that is working his tail off. I'm not even saying that clearly doesn't because I don't know, but I do know that Kyle Isbell does. Like I've, I've heard people make comments about the kid's work ethic. Um, so even if they're the same, then you've got two of the same player, two prospects of the same value. And at least you have the luxury to flip one of them. Right. So, um, regardless of what this says about says or does not say about Lee, because I really I don't know I'm, I I don't know one way or the other. I do think this is a really good sign for what the organization thinks of Kyle Isbell. Yeah, absolutely. And then you look at the like, as I mentioned earlier, I, it gives me almost the reverse of what we see on the James Shields trade, where the head strip the rotation, the sticks were there. Now you're seeing them, you know, add in some of these guys. Like you add in Carlos Santana as well as, to this lineup and Andrew Benintendi. So it's going to look at a very different, unique Royals lineup than what we've seen in the last couple of years. And now we look at the starting rotation. A high likelihood that Bubich and Singer will still, will still be in the rotation. I, if they finish the year, they pretty much pitched the entire season in Kansas City. I would imagine they're going to start the year with the big league club. Jackson Coar and Daniel Lynch are not too far behind. I think Lynch is going to be up there first. Asa Lacey as well. Who do you think? Where do you think the rotation looks at the end of 2021 for the Royals? Like, which guys do you think come up and 
assert themselves in the rotation to start in 22? So I, I think it depends on how the year is going. <clears throat> um, in a perfect world, the like, like in terms of value, in terms of the team competing, a perfect world would have Brad Keller, I think pretty obviously. And then I think the next three are kind of very much um, situational. If everything is going perfect and the Royals are actually competing for a playoff spot because the rotation has been so good, then after Brad Keller, your next three starters are Danny Duffy, Mike Miner, and Irvin Santana. And follow me on this. I I forgot about Irvin Santana signing that minor league deal. Yeah, so – the thing is, I don't expect Irvin Santana to be that good at this point in his career, but let's just say that he is. Let's say he comes out and puts up a 3.8 ERA and throws almost 200 innings for this team. Man, if Irvin Santana has given you that, if Mike Miner's pitching well, if Danny Duffy's pitching well, this team's got a shot. So I think in a perfect scenario, in the 100th percentile outcome for the Royals this year, you've got Miner, Duffy, and Santana all pitching lights out in your rotation at the end of the year because you've been able to hold on to them. Like, I think if Danny Duffy's pitching well and this team isn't doing well, I don't know if Danny Duffy's here in August. Same with Irvin Santana. I also don't think personally that Irvin Santana nor Danny Duffy will even be in the rotation come August. Regardless of what I think, the best possible outcome is all three of those guys pitching in the rotation and pitching really well. What I think is more likely is that we get to August, that this team is right below 500, um, not necessarily in direct competition for the playoffs. And your rotation in August is Brad Keller, Brady Singer, Chris Bubich, Asa Lacey, and Daniel Lynch, maybe Jackson Kowar if they go to a sixth. That is best-case scenario. Um, I, I, I think Mike Miner starts all year. I could see a situation where they shift him into the bullpen. Um, I think Danny Duffy is is bound for the bullpen eventually. I don't think he can. I, I don't think he's a starter all year. And then Irvin Santana, I trade him, put him in the bullpen, DFA him. I don't really care about that. Um, but I think best case scenario is all young guys at the end of the year. Um, and by best case scenario, I mean for future outlook. Um, Mike Miner, they paid him quite a bit of money. I ex- I would not be surprised at all if he is a starter all year but I think if you're talking about going into 22 the best case scenario is your whole rotation as young guys and micro and Mike Miner is just shoving in the bullpen yeah it'll be really interesting to see how it goes and I think despite some of the moves that have been made you go and get Benintendi, you Carl Santana on a two-year deal, you get Mike Miner on a two-year deal. I don't think it's about this year totally. I think this is a year where you're going to start to see that switch flip a little bit. And I think, the, I think it's perfectly realistic the Royals win between 75 and 78 games. Uh, you know, I think the, the, perspective, the baseball prospectus projection was like 71. That, but that was also before the Benintendi trade, I think. So I, you know, I'm not going to take too much stock into that. I don't, I don't think the Royals finished 20 games below at this point. But I think if you finish 77 and what would that be, 80, 82, something, 83, something like that. I don't know the math, but either way, 77, 85. But I think if you finish somewhere in that range, that's a pretty good year, all things considered, considering where the Royals have been the previous three years. 
you know, 200 loss seasons in a year where you finish 20 games below in a 60 game season. And at that point, if you're, if you're there, it means you're probably not competing in July and August. And like you said, I think that's your chance to, okay, we're still going to have these dudes under control. We're not going to hit, hit that rookie limit. Let's get Lacey in there. Let's get Kolar in there. Let's get Lynch in there and just see what we have. And then all those dudes are competing for rotation spots and bullpen spots going into 22. Uh, I, I would be curious what they do with Kolar. I, it depends on what his cur- what his curveball looks like. If he's still kind of just fastball change, let that ba- let let that fastball change eat in the bullpen and see what you have there. I think that would be that would be kind of fun to see. I'm cu- I'm really curious what Lacey looks like in his first full professional year. Sucks we didn't get to see him in rookie ball or anything this past year, uh, but from everything we've seen from him in satellite camp and some of the stuff he's put out from his off-season workouts down in College Station. He looks the part, looks like the real deal. And then everything we've heard from from Daniel Lynch, I think you made a great point. It's like what we heard about Patrick Mahomes in 2017 from practice stuff. Like, it's – that's going to be the guy. Uh, we lo- I, I like Singer. I think Bubich is good. Uh, you and I have been driving the hype train for Jackson Coar for two or three years now. Daniel Lynch is that dude. And – I'm, I'm excited to see if, if he can get to the majors in 21, uh, that's going to be huge for this team. And to see him produce right away, if that ends up being the case, I mean, there's your guy. There's, there's your horse for the stretch run of the postseason coming a year or two. For sure. And I think, you know, one thing that to keep in mind about Daniel Lynch is he had to – make some adjustments on his own at Virginia and then coming out of Virginia that he is still, you know, even in the last year was still finding his own way finding his own groove. It just sounds like he's put all of that together. And if Daniel Lynch had gone to LSU, if he'd gone to um, literally anywhere, but Virginia at the moment, I don't think we're having the conversation about him not being like Kylie McDaniel today didn't have Daniel Lynch in his top 50 prospects. And, and, you know, Kylie McDaniel's a great, he's a former scout. He's a great, he's a phenomenal baseball writer, phenomenal baseball mind, but he had Casey Mize at 20. If you just flipped Daniel Lynch and Casey Mize in their draft position, if Daniel Lynch had been drafted number one overall, and if Casey Mize had been drafted 34th, changed nothing about them, nothing, nothing else changes. Just when big league teams drafted him, Daniel Lynch would be a top five prospect in baseball, and Casey Mize would not be in the top 100. It is so reputational-based sometimes. And, and Clint Scholes, if you, if you guys don't subscribe to his Patreon, you need to. It's $1 a month. I know you got 12 bucks for the year laying around. Go subscribe to Clint Scholes. It's royalsacademy.com. He's, um, like I said, it's a dollar a month on Patreon. He, he released something a few weeks ago. It was Baseball America released their top 100. And then Baseball America came out and said, oh, man, look at this. It's a lot of first-round picks. And Clint made a little comment in one of his articles he wrote. He's like, oh, is this like a self-own? Like their own bias is towards guys who are drafted higher. Like they have a hard time moving off that draft position. I don't think Casey Mize is that great. I think he has a, the chance to be a really good reliever. Um, but I, I don't think he's a starting pitcher. His fastball is not good enough. Change that to Daniel Lynch. He's drafted 34th overall and really, quite frankly, wasn't that great in college. He wasn't that great until he got to professional baseball. 
if Daniel Lynch had been drafted number one for any reason, for, just because the Tigers felt like it, he would be a top five prospect in baseball. And maybe we don't have him quite on the same tier as Mackenzie Gore, even at that level, but he's close. He's really close. And, man, I just – you know, maybe I'm wrong, and maybe we look back at this next August in August of 2022 and think, what were you talking about? Like, what kind of crack were you smoking? Because it must have been some good stuff. Everything I have seen or heard from Daniel Lynch suggests that we are about to be in awe at what we're going to see this year. And I, I don't think there's any chance. If he's healthy, there is no chance they don't bring him up this year. I mean, I can't see a path that Daniel Lynch pitches well, is healthy, and doesn't debut in 2021 because the kid is that good. I was, I was re-watching an outing that he pitched in the Arizona Fall League and the, there's a actually Emmy, Emily Walden tweeted about it. It's he hit, he popped 99 on the glove, and it's so flawless. It's so effortless. He just winds up and pink 99 and walks off the mound like he didn't even do anything. It was just like I I am so excited. And it, and again, it's kind of like uh, unfortunately for us, if for anyone who remembers Patrick Mahomes back in 2017, players in their press conferences would talk about him during the season. Patrick Mahomes wasn't even playing and players in their at post game and like midweek press conferences would talk about Patrick Mahomes. Like, man, you got to see what this dude's doing in practice. It's the same thing we're getting from players now about Lynch. We had a podcast recording. I think it was last spring, maybe when all COVID really started and we were maybe still a little unsure. Maybe it was last summer. I don't remember when it was, but Richard Lovelady just like offhandedly, mentioned how filthy Daniel Lynch was. And I, for a guy like Richard Lovelady, who is filthy in his own right, to be saying stuff like that, man, I just – I don't necessarily think Royals fans realize what they're getting because the national media hasn't seen it in over a year and a half and hasn't adjusted their rankings accordingly yet. Daniel Lynch is a top 25 prospect in baseball. Keith Law got it right on this one. And I, I could not be more excited to see that kid throw. Yeah, I remember that uh, that podcast we did. It was it was like in July or August at satellite camp, and we had Nick Heath on, who was on the men from the IL, and then Richard Lovelady was actually at Community America Ballpark. I had T Bones at the now the Kansas City Monarchs at their stadium doing satellite camp, sitting there with his mask on, just sitting in the bleachers, just shooting the ball with us for like an hour. And we asked, like, okay, who's been the dude that's impressed you the most? And he just goes, like, without even thinking, just, oh, that, kid, that Lynch kid is filthy. Just, like, without even a second thought. And that, that's always something that's, that's stuck with me throughout this whole offseason and things like that. Like, that, that quickly, like, of all the dudes that are there, he just goes, oh, yeah, Lynch, it's Lynch for sure. Like, that guy is ridiculous. Uh, that says a lot because, you know, like I said, for, for Richard to, to say that, I mean, that's pretty high praise too. Like Richard's a, Richard's an awesome dude. And they like said, he, he's really damn good in his own right. And wish we could see more of him this year in the bullpen for the Royals. Uh, well, but I and, think it says a lot about what Daniel Lynch is. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the way that he said it like that. Like there, there's a, I don't want to call it a code. Like it's, you know, some kind of unwritten rule or anything ridiculous, but Anytime you ask a player about their teammates, they're always going to try to throw in a lot of them and talk about how all their teammates are good. And it's just protecting your teammates a little bit. Like, I don't know, just, just giving everybody props, you know, being humble. And that's what Love Lady was doing by all accounts. But there's something about guys that separate themselves too. Like with Mahomes in practice. Like, 
when when other players see it and other players know it, the, like they know before anybody else because they have to compete against them. Like they have to get on the mound after Lynch or before Lynch or hit in the box against Lynch. And again, when when a player says something that quickly, like Richard Lovelace did not know we were going to ask him about other players. Like he had no way of knowing that's what we were getting ready to ask. And Nick Heath was on the call. Like we didn't even ask Richard specifically. We asked both of them. And he and he jumped in there and offered that up. I mean, the players know before we do. Like they always do. And for him to make that comment without like immediately going, oh, and you know, all these other guys are good. Like they know who's got next. And I think Richard Lovelady kind of subconsciously and and, and on accident, quite frankly, told us that Richard that Daniel Lynch has got next. And I once he said that, like, you could tell that Nick Heath's face kind of lit up too. Man, I got, I got butterflies when they were talking about that because you could just tell that they realized what they were watching. And, man, if, if, if Daniel Lynch comes out and starts shoving, people are going to be redacting their not top 50 rankings so quickly their heads are going to spin. Oh, yeah. It, it's very exciting, like I said. Just talking about baseball is just gonna be so giddy and excited. It's it's something that I've missed so badly, and I'm ready for it to come back. I've had on my wife and I have a little uh, like whiteboard calendar thing on our fridge, and on part of it, I've had days until pitchers and catchers report and a countdown going every day since the last out of the World Series. Like that's how obsessed I am. If you need any indication, uh, my wife makes fun of me for it all the time when I go and change the day, and I've done it, you know since about 110 days or whatever it is so so does does joey molinaro hey that that dude also that dude doesn't miss (laughs) oh hey two weeks two weeks for catching pitchers catchers (laughs) yeah that that dude is undefeated on the internet i swear to god Um, kids hilarious as i mentioned earlier in this episode we have an interview alex and i did last week with ann rogers the new beat reporter for mlb.com covering the royals um it was an awesome time talking with her and they said she's replacing Jeffrey Flanagan who retired after a long illustrious career covering Kansas city sports with a star and for MLB.com. And after talking with her, like, I don't think there's a better person to pass the torch to carry the torch covering the Royals for what Jeffrey did to her. Uh, she's awesome. She covered the Cardinals for a couple of years. She's a Mizzou grad. Uh, so obviously the, the J school there is insane. And so, you know, that she knows what she's doing. Alec Lewis, who uh, covers Royals for the athletic is a Mizzou grad as well. So you still have that, that connection there, uh, but she's awesome. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation and we'll have it on the other side of this break. We will be right back. And joining us on our first episode back uh, on the Royals Farm Report podcast is Ann Rogers. She is the brand new beat reporter for MLB.com, covering the Kansas City Royals. Previously, she worked with the St. Louis Cardinals. She's a Mizzou grad. We're glad to have her on tonight. How are you doing, Ann? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. So Alex, is a, he went to Central Missouri, but he is a diehard Mizzou guy. So <laughs> you guys got that going for you. M-I-Z. Tigers. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I applied to Mizzou. That's about all I got. <laughs> <laughs> we I'm only take learning. the best. Only take the best. I'm just learning years. now the. I'm just learning now the fandom of it because in college I covered most of the athletics, so I never really cheered for them. Um, so now it's I'm kind of getting into you know like actually paying attention more than you know just the reporter point of view, and you know that's pretty fun, especially the well, basketball. 
I got to ask, so you're from Des Moines. Were you a Mizzou fan growing up or did you just apply for the J school? Yeah, just applied for the J school. I didn't know anything about Missouri really, um, in, except for my senior year when I started looking around for journalism schools. I grew up a uh, Hawkeye fan, University of Iowa, um, and then kind of switched over. I mean, I root for both with the Cyclones because my dad works at Iowa State and my brother goes there. So um, kind of a, a big, I love college football, um, but then once I went to Mizzou, we expanded our, our reach down to Missouri and started rooting for the Tigers too. So you don't you don't really know the pain of being a Mizzou fan yet. You're not you're not heavily invested enough just yet. Oh, I have heard stories. My boyfriend graduated from Mizzou and he has lived in St. Louis his whole life. So he is he's a Mizzou fan and he's told me all of the painful moments. Um, yeah, I've so I've heard them, but I haven't experienced them um, beginning to now. I guess. <laughs> well, just hang around long enough. They're sure to break your heart at some point. If there's any consolation here, I, I'm an Oklahoma State graduate, but I recognize that same amount of pain. So we, I can I can empathize with the the Mizzou pain with Oklahoma State pain. It's very similar, I'm sure. I think every sports fan has that you oh, know yeah. two moments. You're like that just hurts. That just hurts. So I'll start here. You mentioned uh, in the very beginning when we you know introduced you that you are just kind of learning to be a fan of Mizzou because you covered them for so long. How do you balance? being a fan and being passionate about what you're writing about without kind of taking that fan route and staying, you know, as unbiased as you can as a journalist? Yeah, it's a good question. I um, really, I just kind of channel that passion into the game. Um, you know, it's um, pretty easy for me to take myself out of it just because that's how I was trained. And also, I, you know, it's, it's my job. It's a great job, but it's my job at the end of the day. So, um, you know, I view it as, as work. Um, and, and really, I just, you know, I love baseball. Um, I grew up watching baseball. I grew up playing softball. Um, you know, my family is a baseball family. Um, so I really love the game. And that's kind of what I, I channel my passion into. And then um, being able to, you know, analyze the game and talk to players, talk to coaches, create stories, and, and um, really focus on the humans in the game. That's really where my passion lies now. Um, it's not so much, it's not really that difficult to take my fandom out of it, um, even when I was covering the Cardinals, uh, because I grew up close to St. Louis and grew up a Cardinals fan. Um, you know, I just kind of was like, you know, this is my job and it's a fantastic job and I love it a lot. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you're a reporter and that's kind of how you um, were trained that way. So it's really not that difficult and, and, and I kind of just channel all of it into the game and, and what I love about, about baseball. You know, you talk about building a relationship with the players, and, you know, this is a, obviously a unique situation, but I'm sure you saw Jeff Passon's story about um, – I can't remember his last name. Drew um, – Drew Robinson. 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 Yeah. I was thinking Drew Roberts. I knew that wasn't right. Drew Robinson today. You know, the, the, the person – the people behind those stories is obviously so special and so unique. But at times, you know, it is part of your job to write about the, the players not living up to their end of a contract as it perform as they perform on the field or about potentially having to replace a player. So how do you, how do you balance getting those relationships with the players for those stories that matter so much, but also knowing that there, at some point in your job, it's going to require you to not, not necessarily be negative, but the realities of the business of baseball. Yeah. Um, it is a business. Um, yeah. The, the relationships are important. And, and I think, really what you have to establish early is that you, you know, you're going to treat them as humans. You're not going to treat them as, 
you know, just the player on the field that they are. Um, that's a huge part of the person they are. Um, and it certainly comes into play every night. Um, we write about them and we're going to write about their performance and they know that. Um, but we're really, I'm looking really to write about them as humans and, you know, share the world, their story, if they'll let me. And I think you start with that kind of, you start with that relationship and, and they know too. I mean, I don't think any, every single player knows about the business of baseball. And at some point they come to the reality of the business of baseball. And so, you know, they, they understand that, um, you know, really well, probably better than anybody. Um, and so of course we're going to write about it. Of course we have to you know talk to them about it. Um, and if they want to talk about it, they, they can, they know that we're there to, to share their story. And um, so, yeah, it's just kind of a balance of that relationship of being able to say, yeah, we're going to, we can, we're going to talk about your performance and we're going to talk about, you know, the business of it, but also we know you're a human and we want to share your story that way as well. So being kind of as professional and, and ethical about it as possible. This, you know, obviously this last year has presented challenges beyond what we can talk about on a baseball field, but I know in your profession, it's presented its own unique set of challenges during that 2020 season where you didn't have as much access. How were you still able to build those relationships and talk to players? It's very different doing it over a Zoom call or, you know, socially distanced in a, a press box or something like that. How are you able to still navigate that part of it? Because building relationships with players and with co the coaching staff and the organization as a whole is so important. How are you still able to do that this past season? Yeah, it was uh, difficult, that's for sure. Um, I definitely, I feel like I kind of took a step back, really. Um, I was going into my second year covering the Cardinals, and I um, thought, I, you know, spring training was great for me because I spent the whole time down in Florida, and they saw my face every single day and got to know me more than just, you know, what they knew during the season in 2019. Um, and then it all kind of stopped. Um, you know, I, rel I relied on the relationships that I had built in 2019 um and that helped me a lot to get through 2020 you know you the players know you they they see you on zoom um but also you know if you have if you can reach out to them um beyond zoom and and ask them you know other questions uh beyond what you know you guys what we talked about on the zoom that night um more about the game i think you know that helps a lot too but it did. It was really difficult. Um, <laughs> at the beginning, we were all kind of figuring out Zoom and figuring out how to ask questions on Zoom and <laughs> what happens when your internet goes out. Um, you know, it, it really was a challenge, um, but I think we got into a routine um, over time. And I know it was only 60 games, um, but by the end of the season, I think everybody kind of got it. And we're going to start the season this way um, over Zoom. And we just kind of have to adjust and adapt to it. Um, so hopefully, you know, players and coaches, they, if they see your face on, in a box. It's not the same as in a clubhouse, but if they see your face every day on the Zoom, um, hopefully they, they start to recognize you and, and your questions and that sort of thing. So you kind of just like everything, you just adapt to it and hope that it goes back to normal. Right. That's a big part of all of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping for some normalcy in 2021, but we'll see. As far as, as far as getting to watch the games, is there anything that you noticed that – or I guess I should ask first, were you able to attend the games there in St. Louis and, like, be in the press box and actually get to watch? Yep, I went to every home game. Uh, we did not travel last year. I'm hoping that resumes um, in this season. Um, but So I didn't travel last year, so that was difficult for me watching the games on TV. But I was able to go to Bush Stadium and – and watching the ballpark, and that was really nice.
so that was my question then. So this can apply to the road games. How difficult is it to – what are some things you feel like you miss? So, like, compared to when you're sitting in the press box in St. Louis watching the team play on the field, getting to see everything that happens in between every single play, what are some things you feel like you missed about the game while it was on the road? Because most fans are accustomed – you know, we watch – 90% of the games, most of us at home on TV. And so we're, I, I think we're less apt to picking up on stuff that does happen in the games. What are some stuff that you feel like you missed? Some, some, you know, things that you would include in stories, some pieces that of the game that you just didn't get to see because you weren't at every single game. Sure. Yeah. The, um, the, the big thing is, you know, who's up in the bullpen, um, who's stretching even because that th those matter more you know, even if they start getting warmed up and don't end up going in, warming up, you know, that factors a little bit into like their availability um, for that night and beyond. Um, so that that was the biggest thing in the dugout. Um, just, you know, how the players are reacting, um, who's in the dugout, who left the dugout, things like that, how they interact with the manager, um, that sort of thing. Uh, even just like, you know, things on the field, um, like let's say a left fielder makes a great um, move or may, has a great jump. We don't see that. You don't see that on TV. Um, you see the catch and it's great, but you also want to be able to see the jump. And, and in the press box, I can see that happening in real time and, and kind of see how they set themselves up, how they position themselves to be able to defend that sort of thing. Um, you know, even just like celebrations too, sometimes the camera will cut out and you won't see the end of a celebration, um, let's say a walk off or something. And, and that could be a good an anecdote for a story. Um, so there's a lot of little things. I'm like, just like trying, having a hard time remembering all of the little stuff because it's it's just the atmosphere, the environment, everything. Um, just you miss, you start to miss it. Um, not only for your stories, but just like as your job too. Um, so I definitely, definitely miss it. Definitely tried to um, make sure that I was still giving as much as I could over Zoom and asking questions um, outside of Zoom, that sort of stuff just to be able to, to bring those little notes and stuff into the story. I think the, the one thing that I miss the most, and I don't know if either of you can speak to this is the, the one thing that I miss the most personally about missing those games in person is, you know, with specific pitchers on the mound and how the defense would align even before the next batter got to the plate. I think it's so cool watching the players. So let's say it's Duffy on the mound gets a pop fly and in the, while the ball's in the air, Salvi, if, the, if he doesn't have runners to worry about, looks down at the first base and looks down at the third baseman, and they're already communicating, if the play allows, for the next batter. Hey, um, you need to be on the line. You need to be in the hole. Make sure you get over because we're getting ready to shift. But they know, like, the ball will be in the air. The left fielder hadn't even caught the ball yet. And you've already got other players communicating with the next about the next guy coming up. Like, they know in their head every single play they're about to run. It's almost like earlier this week, Mahomes was talking about, you know, their first 15 plays are scripted, they're ready to go, and now it's just about going out there on Sunday and executing them. But it's like they have this script in their head and they're able to memorize it. And just that, that little piece of communication that you don't get when you're sitting at home watching it on a broadcast is one thing that I'm really excited just to get back out, those little nuances of baseball. But um, I, I know what you mean, just those, those little things, it's just – it hurts. Yeah, and that's the best, you know, that's really why I love baseball so much is those little things. Um, you know, people call, people say the game is slow, but they don't look at the full field. Um, you know, when the pitch is being released, what's the shortstop doing? 
when the pitch is being, you know, hit, what, what are the outfielders doing? That, that's my favorite part because there's so many different ways that it could, you know, transpire and they're ready for all of them. Um, so I, I think, you know, I'm really excited to get fans back in the stadium and to be back in the press box just to get back to that sort of, you know, being able to watch those little things happen. I think over the past season, something I thought about a lot is watching these games. It was obviously weird not having the roar of the crowd and the atmosphere and that little background noise, you know, from, you know, a sold out crowd at pick a ballpark. But I think what I loved about watching baseball this season was you just got the sounds of the game for, you know, for 60 games, you know, you'd have your, your play-by-play announcers and all that, but in the background, it was just, the crack of the bat, the pop of the knit, player dugout chatter, all that. You got all of that, which can be lost on a broadcast or can be lost sitting down the third baseline at a ball game with a beer and a hot dog, which we all love those moments. But being able to kind of take a step back and appreciate just the game for what it was made me, I think, have a deeper appreciation for baseball and something that I, you know, something that can get lost sometimes, something you don't always think about. Like we know the, you know, the pop of the glove and, you know, the crack of the bat. Those are two, those are some of the best sounds in sports, but we don't always get that sometimes. And I think this season kind of brought that back for me, that almost that sandlot feel at times, especially the inner squad scrimmages that teams would, mm-hmm. they, they would live stream them on YouTube or on Twitter and there was no audio. It was just the game. And I loved watching that because it just was those sounds of the game, you know, the dugout chatter, the crack, everything. And it was, it was so cool. And I, I never, I'd never want to take that side of baseball for granted ever again. I want to get back to the ball game. I want sold out crowds soon, but I never want to lose sight of that aspect of baseball. And I think it this past season, if I could take anything positive from it, it was that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the classic sounds of summer and that's kind of what spring training is too. You know, you go out to the backfields and the sun's beaten down and all you hear are the bats and, you know, the ball, hitting gloves and, and they, that sort of thing. There was a game in, um, that I covered last season and it uh, and the, the background noise, the fan noise that was pumped in cut out for a second. And you could literally in the press box, you could hear the players in the dugout talking and everyone kind of just like got really quiet. You know, nobody said anything for a second. And then like they kept playing and finally the, the noise came back in and it was, it was eerie, but it was also super cool because like, you know, you heard absolutely everything. You could hear people in the bullpen even. Um, it was it was wild. So you've you you covered St. Louis for two years, correct? Yeah, that's right. So you're I mean, you're still pretty new on the job. We haven't even gotten a spring training game in yet, but just right away, culturally, organizationally, are there, is there anything that you've noticed, anything you would compliment the Royals organization on? I know, um, you know, I, I, I've talked to a few of the guys that are that are involved in that process, but um, anything you notice that's different? Because we get we get all the time that Dayton Moore runs a tight ship and it's great people, and he wants to surround the organization and the team with great people. So, anything anything about the organization that you know is different from St. Louis? Not that it's in, in any way inherently better than what was going on in St. Louis. Just um, things you've noticed early on. Yeah, I would say exactly that. Um, that you know, everyone just seems, you know, really nice and they want to welcome you in. Um, you know, I had, I've had, I've been having calls with, um, you know, Royals front office people just introducing myself. And 
um, you know, everyone's kind of asking about, you know, my life and they want to get to know me and, and that's really nice. Um, and they, uh, yeah, they're just, I just, all I, all I heard before I took the job was, before I came over here was just how nice that organization is, how they care about people. They care about, um, they, they want to make whatever they have better than what, when they, when they, got there. um, so I know, I know Dayton has been there for a really long time, but he's always looking, you know, whenever he does move on, he wants to be able to say that the Royals organization is better. And, and I think that's really important. And he wants to, you know, being able to grow the game and in, in baseball, but also in, in Kansas city as well. So um, it's just really cool. And I'm excited to know more about the organization. Um, everyone that I've talked to is, is just really awesome. Um, very, you know, very welcoming and everything. Um, the players that I've talked to so far have been really nice. And, and of course the coaching staff as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> you may, that might not be what you were looking for, but um, everyone just being just good people um, really is what I've noticed right from the get out and have been on the job about two weeks or so. So um, it's a quick, quick start, but uh, nothing but good, good first impressions. That's awesome. That makes you, makes you proud to be a fan of the team. And, you know, even, you know, Joel and I lightly, I don't use the word covering because by no means we cover the team, but, you know, as a hobby, write about the team a little bit. Um, you know, it, it makes you proud to be a fan of an organization like that, where I don't know that I've ever had a conversation with somebody who it, as a person had a problem with somebody that went on, something went on in the Royals front office or even in the Royals organization for the most part. Um, you know, you get your baseball disagreements for sure at times, but just as people to a man, to a woman there's there's I've never heard of an issue within the organization that you know of people mistreating each other or being abusive and you know I'm I'm not in there I have no idea what goes on on a daily basis but it makes you proud to be a fan of that team to spend your money on that team to spend your time on that team when you know that they're going to be be there um, going to bat for you and your interests in in terms of how they treat people um, off the field. Yeah, it's awesome. And, and really, you know, they've got a new wave coming for players. And I think, you know, that the performance on the field is going to um, kind of reflect that. And, you know, so there's nothing really better than have, fielding a good team while also being good people off the field. Um, I think that's what every organization strives for. And it's hard to do. Um, but I think, you know, that's what the Royals kind of go through um, just as an organization over the years. And I've been learning a lot about the history of the organization, the history of baseball in Kansas City. And, it just seems like, you know, it's just fun and they value baseball and they value people. Um, and, you know, that's, that's awesome. Um, I, that's what I love to hear. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to get to start covering them, um, start the season, start covering the baseball community in Kansas City and, and, and the surrounding area. So, yeah, it's going to be a good time. So you're, you know, you're replacing Jeffrey Flanagan, who retired after an illustrious career covering the Royals and having, you know, and covering baseball for such a long time. Have you, what, have you had any conversations with him? And what is it like to, you know, to be the successor of somebody like that that covered the organization for such a long time? Yeah, Flanny is awesome. Um, he, he helped me with making the decision um, to come over. Uh, you know, the, when he announced his retirement with us, um, I kind of inquired about Kansas City being open and, and talked to him a, a bunch just about what it's like covering the team. Um, and all that stuff because you know we might work for the same company but every team is different um, as far as you know everything that goes on from the organization to the PR staff to other other media outlets so 
talked to him a bunch. Um, he helped me a lot with the transition. Is is still helping me. I'm about to text him tonight to ask him about spring training lodging. So, um, he he's like, you know, you can call me anytime. I'm like, well, I'm gonna just bother you in retirement all the time. So I hope you're ready, man. Um, but no, he's awesome. And of course, I know that I have you know big shoes to fill. Um, I had big shoes to fill in St. Louis when I took over for Jen Langosh. Um, in, in 2019. Um, so I know what it's like. Um, you know, we're, we're different people, Flanny and I. Um, we probably cover it a little bit different. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we, we're still going to have, we have the same job or he had whatever. Um, so we'll be doing, you know, the same thing. I, I'm excited to dive in, you know, to the prospects, to the, to the major league team, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I for sure will be keeping him in the loop, um, making sure he's, he helps me out. Um, with, with all of it too. So he, he won't be, he's not completely shut off. I'm sure he'll, he'll pipe in on Twitter a few times or so. Naturally. I'm sure he's still going to say cheers everybody when the Royals win. It wouldn't surprise me. I think, I think that's just too ingrained in what he does on social media. It's crazy. You know, he, you know, he and I were talking about um, a week after he made the announcement, he was retiring and he's like, I just feel like I'm on vacation. I don't feel like I'm like gone uh, from working um so I, i'm sure he'll he'll start that'll start to settle in um once spring training rolls around and, and opening day but um i'm sure he'll find something to do uh, he's you know he's an awesome guy and um yeah i'm sure we'll be hearing from him is there a player that you maybe haven't gotten the opportunity to talk to you i don't know how many players in the organization you've gotten the opportunity to speak with and get to know yet but is there one player that you for sure like yes i need to interview this person because they seem like awesome person awesome player etc and why is it Nick Heath? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm excited for all of them. I'm, I mainly just said hi to a few of them. Um, not, not too many. Um, so I'm, I'm excited for a lot of them. Nick Heath, for sure, one of them. Um, but especially some of the prospects, too, I've been reading a lot about and, and getting to know that, that sort of side of it. Um, and, you know, people like Bobby Wood Jr. and, and Daniel Lynch and, and all those um, all those people, Jackson Kowar. I'm excited to get to know them. I, you know, with the Cardinals, I didn't get to dive in too much to the minor league system. Of course, I'd cover the top prospects and and all that, but um, mainly it was so focused on the major league team, um, just where they were in the standings, the division, all that sort of stuff, um, playoffs, um, that sort of stuff. So this is going to be a different kind of view. Um, you know, look a little bit to the future. I don't think the future is that far off from the major league team. And I also, I don't think the organization thinks that either. Um, so they're, you know, they might, they're looking for, you know, to, it to come sooner rather than later. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to, to look at all those guys and, and get to know them and talk to them. Um, you know, it's always fun talking to prospects like that just because you can just see the excitement on their face um, every time you talk to them. So definitely excited for, for all those guys and all the major league guys too. Um, you know, Salvi, Nikki, Nikki Lopez, Brad Keller, all, all those guys. Nick Heath's a friend of the show. We, he's been on here a couple of times. He's, he's one of, genuinely one of the best dudes in the business. That's awesome. That's and, awesome. I'll have to say we have that in common then, so we can, we can start off on that good ground. <laughs> yeah, and we're, we, uh, Alex and I have been driving the Jackson Coar hype train for about, this is about three years now, so we're, we're ready for that guy to get to the majors too. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, let's see here. Where else do we want to go? Do you have anything else, Alex? Oh, he is in the middle. He's eating dinner too. Of course he is. Sorry. My, my wife and I, Joel, edit this out of the podcast. I will. I my will. wife and I have our first sonogram tomorrow morning and I have been really busy trying to 
balanced school, that and eating. So they always come a little meshed together. But anyway, important dinner is important. You were talking about um, the balance of prospects and depending on where you're on the standing, like you mentioned, St. Louis, they were in more in competition for the playoffs and it's, it's, you know, more imperative to cover the big league team at the moment. The balance I'm sure is, is probably something that you have to make a decision about in, in your job. And there is certainly a market for minor league baseball in Kansas city, specifically when the team is struggling, but it is, you know, MLB.com. And I know they do the MLB pipeline now, but that, that balance is something that, you know, luckily for us, we are Royals farm report. We don't do a whole lot of big league stuff in terms of writing, in terms of coverage and, and research. Um, but how, how do you, how do you wage, how do you wager that balance? How do you decide, you know, how much time you're going to spend in minor league baseball? Because that certainly detracts the time you're spending researching and interviewing players for the big league team. And, you know, in St. Louis is probably a little easier, but heading into the season where the Royals expect to be competitive, but maybe not a playoff team this year, but they have a lot of exciting young names coming up. You know, how, how do you spend time debating and, and wagering that, that, that bounce. Yeah, well, luckily, um, my editor does have a say, so he can just tell me what to do. <laughs> but um, no, I, it, it will be interesting. I think you kind of just see how it all plays out. Um, as far as, you know, if the major league team is going well, you put all your researches into that. If, you know, they start to dwindle a little bit, and suddenly a prospect is on the rise, and, you know, Bobby Wood Jr. is, you know, suddenly hitting 400, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to switch your focus to that. Um, I'm really excited about what we're doing on MLB.com this season. Uh, MILB.com is merging with us. And so we're going to have um, kind of a, we're going to just kind of com combine our resources. Um, and, you know, teams like the Royals, um, think, you know, like Orioles, Mariners, that, that sort of team has a strong, um, strong pipeline, strong farm system. You're going to, maybe switch your focus over depending on how the major league team and you're going to focus a little bit more on, on what's on the rise. Um, especially if, you know, there's a prospect that's you know doing really well um, in the minors this year. So we want, we definitely want to give coverage to the minor leagues, especially after a year where nothing happened. Um, but also, you know, of course I'm the world's reporter, so I'm going to focus on the major league team. And um, especially, you know, if, if things start going well, like, like they hope um, you want to be able to put all your resources into that. So it's, it's kind of a, a balance and you know you lean on your editor you lean on the pipeline guys as well um, and then you also just kind of see for yourself and how it all goes so minor league minor league baseball.com is merging with mlb how long until we get a minor league baseball tv merger with the mlb at bat app there you go you gotta bring that's a good question i hope i hope soon i hope i hope that's in the works i'm not sure on the details of all that but um that's that'd be cool yeah that's that's one thing that makes life a little difficult minor league baseball is when like the Royals had a huge, massive grouping of prospects at Wilmington and you couldn't watch them until they went on the road at like specific locations. So um, I know uh, quad cities has a good minor league stream. I'm fairly certain Columbia does too. I feel like I've watched a couple of Lexington legends games on the, on the Columbia stream um, off the top of my head. I don't know, but merging that with the MLB at bad app and having all that in one place would be very, very cool pay one subscription instead of two that would be also awesome so rooting for that in the future if you find it if you get any good words on that let me know because i'm super excited okay i'll keep you updated i'll put in a, a good word they, they definitely listen to me all the time 
for sure. I can't, I can't wait to watch some of the like the worst batter's eye views of all time on on milb.com. Uh, there's one that still sticks out in my mind. I think it's I want to say it's Nashville. The awesome. you know how the you know how the camera is offset normally to like the third base side. It's to the first base side. It's so awful and off putting and wrong. Yeah, and it's not like particularly close either. Like it's almost like you're looking over the second baseman's shoulder. Yeah. That's Nashville, right? I think so. Yeah, I think it's Nashville. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oof, awful. But yeah, my, but it's it'll be baseball, and I think I'm not going to turn down watching a single baseball game possible uh, if that's the case, especially when it comes to the minor league system. All right, and let's get to know a little more about you and your baseball fandom. We'll take a step back from the journalism side for a little bit. We <laughs> talked about that enough. So you said you grew up a, a Cardinals fan. Who's your favorite player? Grew up a Cardinals fan. Um, my favorite player. Okay, so I, I usually, like, I'll say Scott Rowland because, you know, he was awesome and I love defense. But actually, my favorite player was Skip Schumacher. Oh, um, okay. Because I just liked his name, and I played second base, and he was a second baseman you know, for the Cardinals. Um, so that was that was my second base. That was, like, my favorite player um, just because, like, I thought he was super cool, and I don't know. Um, and – he played second base. So like, you know, every, every young kid is always like, Oh, I play this position. So I'm going to like this player. But um, yeah. So I grew up with like, you know, the, the two, uh, 2004 and beyond Cardinals teams, um, which were really good. And um, so, yeah, you got, it was weird because I remember watching Adam Wainwright pitch when I was a kid and then I covered him and um, in 2019 and 2022 as a reporter. So that was very strange. And Yadier Molina as well. Um, so I love those, those teams. Um, you know, Albert Pujols, of course, was, was awesome. Um, but yeah, Scott Rowland and Skip Schumacher were probably my two favorites. I was, I was a big Scott Rowland guy too when I was a kid. Like that was always a guy that I was never, obviously a huge Cardinals fan. I grew up Royals and Mariners, but always loved Scott Rowland. I remember I, one of my like coach pitch teams, I think when I was a kid, we were the Cardinals and I wore number 27 because I loved Scott no. Rowland. That was, and also Scott Rowland's a hall of famer. <laughs> yeah. I would agree with you on that one. Yeah. He's a, uh, he's just, I mean, it was, he was so much fun to watch um, at third base. Uh, and then, you know, my grandpa was um, just such a big baseball fan. And so he kind of like drilled into me, like defense is everything, you know, you gotta be a good defender, all that stuff. So I kind of still lean toward that. Um, and you so when I see a good defender, I'm always like, oh yeah, that's a good player. You're going to fit in great in Kansas city. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Welcome to, welcome to defense first capital of the world. And not, not in football, baseball only, but. <laughs> yeah. hey, hey, Spags is going to have him ready on Sunday. Don't, I'm not hey, going to talk. Spags to hasn't turned around. That is fair. If you had to stand in the batter's box, and this could be any pitcher in history, if you just stand in the batter's box and just watch a pitcher, like watch their pitches come in, who would you pick? Mm. Mm. Well, my first thought was Bob Gibson. Um, He'd knock you down, oh, too. <laughs> I would also be running away very quickly from that box. Um, there'd be no way I'd actually stand there. Um, but also, I kind of – I would love to face – Mariano Rivera's cutter, that would be awesome. Um, I would not do anything with it. I'd also probably still run away from the box. I wasn't a good hitter when I was a kid. Um, I wasn't either. I'm with you there. I was basically just used for running um, because I, I was fast. So but I would basically just like 
you know, either draw a walk or, and then run the bases or just be a pinch runner. Um, so I, I wasn't good, wasn't good. So this is a bad question because I would not do anything with the pitches um, besides watch and, and run away. Well, the good news is part of the question was just like, just to see it come in. Cause I, you know, I, I'd be terrified too. But yeah, if I watched two fastballs come in from Bob Gibson and there were strikes, uh, he's throwing the next one in my head because that's just what he did. And then he threw that, that ridiculous slider down and away and you're done. Yeah. And I would still like, I would still probably run from the slider, even if it's going away from me or something. Oh yeah. It looked like it's starting at your front hip and then just dive to the other, into the other yeah. batter's box. Yeah. So those are probably the two, um, you know, Nolan Ryan too, that would be fun. Um, just be able to face him. But yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of really good pitchers. That's a good question. Alex, have you, like I've asked this question, but have you ever answered it? Well, I hit right-handed. So this, I'm going to cheat a little bit. But if I could pick one, I would stand in the box left-handed and let Randy Johnson throw a slider. Because the story's like, like physically, if you watch him pitch, his, he is literally releasing the ball behind the batter. And then also throwing a slider, which can be behind the batter for a little bit before it breaks back over the plate. I mean, I'm guessing, I don't, I don't know that I've ever seen the physics broken down of it. I'm guessing that ball, when he threw his slider, like a really good one, it may be like a front door, front hip type of pitch. I'm guessing that the ball was 40 feet away from the hitter and still behind them, and it made, the, made up the ground to go from behind the hitter's back to the front hip, front part of the plate within 40 feet, which I can't even imagine having to deal with. So I think that would be my answer. But if I had to bat right-handed, which is my natural side, it would probably also be Mariano Rivera's cutter. Just because it's like – it's a hard concept to wrap your mind around, the idea that – like, we always talk about pitchers got to have two, three pitches. They got to have an extra pitch. What is Josh Stomont going to throw with this fastball? It's like, they got to have something else. It's like, well, except for one guy who didn't. And it's like, what What he tell Salvi at the All-Star game in 2012? He's like, all cutters, you just pick a side of the plate. Like, they knew – like, that was an opponent of his. Like, no. he had to, yeah. like Salvi was still playing against him. And they, they knew what was coming. And there was, there was just literally nothing they could do. So – like, I would love to be on the other side of that. Like, what is the problem? Like, why, why is this so difficult? What is, what is so difficult about this pitch to hit? And also because I have a conspiracy theory about baseball in the first place that I think Mariano Rivera could answer. Um, I will save that for another time, though. But, yeah, probably Moe's cutter if I had to bat right-handed. So, I, I go back and forth on it because I, like, have a righty and a lefty mind. The lefty Sandy Koufax. I have to see what Koufax looked like because, I mean, that's one of the best left-handed pitchers ever right there, you know, and, Man, if he could have kept pitching beyond 30 for 31, I can only imagine what his, his stats would look like. Like the Calvin Johnson of pitchers. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. But my right-handed pitcher, I, I want to say Pedro because I got to see that change up. Because that, that change was just – it's dastardly. Like, he could tell you – it's like the Mariano Rivera throwing a cutter. Like, he could tell you – he's going to throw you his change up six times. You're going to swing and miss over the top of it six times. But I have such a fascination with Satchel Page. And the, and the Negro Leagues in general, especially for the guys that we don't have a ton of stats on when they played in that era, that, you know, there's so many guys that are revered as some of the best players in baseball. And we know nothing about them. I want, and there, and there, there's a fascinating, my fascination with Satchel Page is more like some of the stories about him are legend and in like in reality kind of all meshed together that like he would walk the bases loaded with nobody out and strike the next three batters out. Or he would tell his infielders just to take a seat because he's going to strike the next three batters out. I have, and his control was insane. He would warm up 
he put a, a gum wrapper on home plate and throw over the top of it with all of his pitches. It's insane. Like, I want to see what that looks like. Prime satchel page, I think would probably be my answer for that. Yeah, that's a that's a very good one. Um, as as well as Kofax too. That would be that would be very cool. Very very fun. Alex, I think we need to find a way to interview Bob Kendrick and just let him just tell stories for like two hours. We don't have to say a word. Just let him talk. <laughs> I'm down. I I have emailed a couple times trying to set up field trips. So if you ever get a hold of Bob Kendrick, let me know because if there's like three people on my bucket list of people I could talk to that exist that are like real people, he's one of them. Like I would like I would pay. Like the money that was going for like upper bowl tickets at the Chiefs game on last couple Sundays ago for the AFC Championship game, like I would pay that much money just to have like a dinner with Bob Kendrick, like donate to the museum and have dinner up in Kansas City with Bob Kendrick because like there is nothing I look forward to more than their salute to the Negro Leagues games where he sits in in the booth and tells stories. Like it is the most incredible three hours of my life every summer, like just listening to him because they're always new. He always has, like, new stories he's telling. It's like it's not like your dad, where you go and you listen to your dad tell the exact same story he used to tell you when you were four, and he's still telling you when you're 24. That dude has new stories all the time, and they are always incredible. And they are always, you know, they, 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 they're not just stories for fun. They add something to the legend of the Negro Leagues. They add something that helps you bring people into the museum. And they're just incredible. And, I mean, yeah, that guy's awesome, so – I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah, if you can get a hold of him, let me know. He is awesome. I've interviewed him a few times, um, and he just—I mean—a a quick fifteen-minute call will be what's quickly turned into like forty-five to an hour, um, just because he just talks and talks, and it's awesome. And you just—you just shut up and listen because you know those stories are are just gold. It's awesome. That's All right. One last gotcha. question for you here, Ann. Thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been awesome. We'd love to have you on again as the season rolls on. We'd have actual storylines to talk about as we're, you know, the off season is dwindling here, which is awesome. And we'll actually have real baseball to talk about here soon. We'd love to, to talk about your time, you know, once you get into, you know, go, being able to go to Kauffman Stadium and hopefully travel with the team and get, you know, some stories and stuff. We'd love that. We'd love to do that. For sure. Yeah, I hope so, too. I hope everything, you know, goes somewhat back to normal and I, and I can do all that. Um, but definitely looking forward to getting over there, um, getting situated, learning everybody. So, yeah, this is great. All right. I love it when Joel asked this question. All right. <laughs> if you could go back and watch one moment in baseball history, live in person, you're there. Which is it? That is a great question. Now, I steal it from another podcast, but I still love it because – there's so many different answers, so many different options. I feel like I'm showing my Cardinals bias a lot um, because it's just like on my mind and um, because I've, you know, covered the team for two years and also grew up a, a fan, but so I apologize in advance, but probably Bob Gibson's 17 strikeout game in 1968 world series. That, would that is a unique and new answer. And I love it. I love it. I mean, that. I know that I just said Bob Gibson, um, you know, to face, and I know that I have been talking about the Cardinals a lot, and um, maybe that's a bad thing for Kansas City, but I really think that that would be, that would be one that I would love to see, and just like how it all transpires, um, because he, I mean, it was obviously 17 strikeouts, super dominant anyway, but he did it against, you know, a Detroit team that was, I mean, loaded, and they eventually won the series. Um, and he just struck out Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer. Um, 
you know, slugger after slugger. And so, yeah, I think that would probably be the one. But if you give me like an hour, I'll probably find another one and another one, maybe like five more that I would like to see. <laughs> I change my answer every single time. I really do. And I think <laughs> Alex does the same. But no, that Bob Gibson game, I remember like it's on YouTube. Like there's the full game is on YouTube on MLB vault. And I remember at the beginning of quarantine, like March and April, I went back and watched all these old games. That was one that I sat down and watched. My wife walked into our living room and I'm watching a game and it's black and white and the camera <laughs> angles are terrible. She's like, why are you watching? It's like, I got to watch Bob Gibson. I got this. I had to. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's awesome. I've watched that too. And I've watched lots of highlights from it and I've read books about it. Um, so yeah, that'd probably be my answer right now. But if you ask me the next time, it'll be a different one. Yeah. For, for a second, I thought you were going to go to David Freeze's triple or home run in game six of 2011. I mean, I, I watched that on TV with my dad. Like, so it's, it is a huge moment of my, of my life um, because it kind of like split the switch for me as far as like, like, I really love baseball and this is awesome. And um, so yeah, of course, it'd be awesome to be like be there in the stadium. But yeah, I'd probably go back further. Um, and and plus, I know that my grandpa would be really happy if he could see that Bob Gibson game in person. I, I was I was prepared for you to go to that moment because I was going to clip it and send it to my buddy, one of my best friends, who's a Texas Rangers fan, and just to jab it, jab at him a little bit, you know, put more salt in the wound. Of course, of course, you have to do that every time. Uh, absolutely. Well, Ann, this has been awesome. Thanks so much. Like I said, we'd love to have you on again in the future. For anybody that maybe doesn't follow you yet on social media, can follow your work. Where can they do that? Yeah, it's at A-N-N-E, two underscores, Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S. And follow on Royals.com as well. That's where all my work is. All right. Well, we are looking forward to see what you do uh, and what you write over the offseason and the coming 2021 season. I'm so excited baseball's back. So I've been looking forward to, <laughs> to rebooting the podcast and having actual baseball to talk about for, you know, for months now. So this is, this is awesome. And I'm glad we were able to do this and it won't be the last time I'm sure. Absolutely. Baseball is back. Let's go. Baseball is back. Let's go. <laughs> Thank you once again to Ann Rogers for coming on and talking a little bit about her career, beginning with the Royals. We talked a lot about the, the Cardinals, like Bob Gibson and some of that history. Like that was, that was a ton of fun. Like I'm a huge baseball history nerd. Like that's one of my favorite things to do. I'm way too bad about going on baseball reference rabbit holes with players and their careers and stuff. Um, but it's really cool to talk about everyone has that different, perspective on baseball and I love that question at the end that I always ask because it gives you an insight into how they view the game as a fan and I think she answered it really well that like the 17th strikeout game from Bob Gibson the World Series that's not one I expected her to say but that's awesome I love that yeah for sure and I you know I, there's there's a good chunk of people in Kansas City who really hate St. Louis and I I contribute to the jokes sometimes because they're jokes I think the picking on St. Louis is funny um, but one one of the weird caveats of having a quote unquote not real but not real rivalry with St. Louis is you know like you said being a baseball history dork like St. Louis has been around for at least 50 years before I, I think it's at least yeah it's like it's like 60 years before the Royals were ever a team the Cardinals were around and I mean they have been around forever and so it may not be 60 years. I can't remember. I don't want to pull it up in front of me, but it feels like it was 60 years. Regardless, you know, they've been around forever. I mean, the, the history that lives in St. Louis baseball is, is rich. And it's, you know, it's, it's teams like the Cardinals. It's teams like the Brooklyn Dodgers and the, 
um, the New York Yankees and the Boston Red Sox and the Cubs that, you know, you, you dive into that history and the Kansas City Monarchs here in Kansas City, like, you know, some of those stories that live on from those teams, the Bob Gibson World Series, Stan Musial, um, Buck O'Neill, Satchel Paige, Babe Ruth. I mean, just the, the tradition that baseball has in this country is deep. And, um, you know, it, it's good to hear people talking about that um, just, just for the appreciation's sake of the game. Yeah, for sure. And I, I love the Moneyball quote, the how can you not be romantic about baseball? Like there's so many of those moments and those stories and everything that's just – it makes it's what makes the game great. And the game has evolved so much from beginning through, you know, the golden era with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Jimmy Fox and all – and Rogers Hornsby and all those guys, you know, into, you know, the 50s and 60s, Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, Mickey Mantle and all the way up steroid era, that is what it is, but it's still an era of baseball and what we're seeing today with the analytic and sabermetric revolution, the way the game is moving that way. It's so cool to see how all of that has evolved. But at the end of the day, like I said, it's still 60 feet, six inches and 90 feet to first. Like it's the game is still the game. And to appreciate the history of the game, I think is like, it's still, it's what makes baseball special. It really is. And not trying to go on some huge soapbox and get all sentimental, but that's really, if you need any indication of how I feel about baseball, that's what the game means to me. It, you know, it's just one of those things. And I, I yeah, love the and, game no matter what. And to your original point that, I mean, that was one of the, the things I got with talking with Ann is, you know, there are, there are some baseball writers who you can tell enjoy the job and they enjoy the modern era of baseball. But when it really comes to the nitty gritty, like there are, I, I'm not going to name names, there are a couple of guys and, and yeah, a couple of guys specifically off the top of my head who, when I think of them as a baseball writer, I think of the modern era, the, the changing of the guard, but you don't really get the love of the game of baseball from them. And that's one thing we're talking with Ann is you can tell just the, the passion for the game runs deep. And I think Royals fans are really, really going to enjoy her coverage of, of on the beat for MLB.com. That's for sure. All right. So this has been a long episode. We appreciate anybody that's listening to this. It means a lot. We're this is essentially a reboot of our podcast. It's been obviously, I believe since last August when we did our, uh, that interview with uh, Nick Heath and Richard Lovelady. I think that was the last episode we did. And so we, we have our goals and what we're going to try and provide you guys for the 2021 season. Expect at least one episode a week. Sometimes it'll be two if we happen to get an interview or something, you know, some crazy breaking news or, you know, a big, you know, promotion or something like that. We'll, we'll kind of see, but if nothing else, one episode a week, we're going to try and provide a little bit of recap from all of the minor league teams. So the Columbia Fireflies, not the Lexington Legends, now the Columbia Fireflies, still in the Sally. They're the low A. Quad City River Bandits is now the high A team, not the Wilmington Blue Rocks. Uh, and then Northwest Arkansas Naturals and Omaha Storm Chasers. Still, you know, double A and triple A remains the same. But we're going to try and give some sort of recap and talk about certain players and, you know, where they fall in our prospect rankings. Are they trending up, trending down, things like that. We'll try and get player interviews here and there whenever we're, we can. The minor league season doesn't offer many off days, uh, but we'll try and do that whenever we can. But we want to provide any minor league analysis that we possibly can. We'll do mailbags. We'll, we'll do every, everything we can during the season and try and make this a consistent deal. And we'll obviously ramp it up even more 
as the Major League Baseball first-year player draft uh, comes about in June or July. I can't remember when they're actually going to have it this year, but uh, it'll hopefully be more than five rounds, and we'll have more to talk about. But it's going to be it's gonna be another year where the Royals draft kind of high, and hopefully it's the last time they, we have to talk about a, a top-five pick for a little while. But that's, that's what we hope to do uh, for, for you guys this season. And any suggestions you guys have, feel free to shoot us a tweet or let us know in the comments on royalsformreport.com about what you guys want to see. And we, we will tailor this to what you guys want out of this because it means just as much that you're listening to this uh, you know, as, as anything. So we, we appreciate anybody that listens to this. Feel free to give us feedback, leave us a review, like, rate, subscribe, all that shameless plug stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Alex, uh, do a quick social media plug for the site, and uh, we'll get out of here, and we will talk to you all next week. Yeah, at Royals Farm on Twitter, just at Royals Farm. Like I said, we will try and make this a weekly thing. Pitchers and catchers report next week, folks. Baseball season is here, as bitter cold as it might be uh, in the Midwest and the Kansas City area. Baseball is about to be back, and uh, it's an exciting time in this, in this city. And uh, we'll talk to you all next week. Have a good one.